Hi, I'm Michael Woods, Chief Scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center, and this is another ATC Double Cut, when I take a second look at one of the posts on the blog, and this one today is one that was a little bit longer than usual. I'll put a direct link to this in the description, and any of the blog posts that I talk about, because I referenced a few in this post, which was about some feedback I got from one of my office hour episodes. Any of the posts that I reference in this particular episode, I'll put a direct link to them so you can go check them out. And I love getting feedback. I really enjoy hearing from people who have read what I've written or listened to or watched what I'm sharing about turf grass. And it gives me a chance to elaborate or clarify or explain a little bit better what I was talking about. In this one, it surprises me about how much feedback there's been about the Office Hours episode on the OM246 report that I did with Chris Tritabaugh. That was something that we recorded either... I. I it was either end of November or early December. Maybe it was early December. And it turned out to be a long conversation, two and a half hours. And it doesn't surprise me that it takes people a long time to get around to watching or listening something that is of that length. However, I, so it doesn't, it does not surprise me that it takes people a long time to listen to it. What does surprise me is just how much feedback I've gotten from people after they finish listening to it. And sometimes they say they've learned something new or they have a question about something we talked about. And in this one, there were five comments from a colleague in Canada. So I thought these comments that he had, comments or questions or perhaps an alternative view on some of these things, were of enough general interest. And, and one of them I thought was really interesting about sulfur. Uh, which which we'll get to at the end. I, I thought that these were of enough general interest that I would share it as a blog post, share my response. And this one, he said uh, he wished he could have caught it live. He would have kept the chat room real busy, which would have been awesome. And then he said the first the first comment, A, was, I like to monitor the organic matter at the deeper depths as it tells me that our improved cultural or management practices are producing roots down there, where in the past the roots were concentrated only in the top two centimeters or top inch. I responded, could be. And he's referring here to Chris and I mentioning that we were really only going to talk about the top two centimeters because that's where most of the, the changes are happening. And that is where there's a lot of variability. I think that you can get information, you can get useful information from all kinds of testing, but at some point it becomes excessive and it's too much sampling. It's just work to collect the samples, but you, and, and laboratory costs to pay for those samples to be tested, but the results would be predictable from the samples that would have already been measured. And based on my analyses of 
OM246 samples over a number of years. I'm comfortable just doing three greens on an 18-hole facility, three greens down to the six-centimeter depth, and there's not a lot changing down there. The greens are much more consistent. The organic material down at that depth is much more consistent. I don't see a need to test more than a few samples. I do like to do some extra testing right at the surface. And by right at the surface, I mean the top two centimeters, or you might call that the top uh, zero, 0 0.8 inches, just, just less than an inch. That's where there is more variability. That's where I think it's useful to do some extra testing. So I didn't mean so much to discount the value of measuring the organic matter down at a four to six centimeter depth, but rather Chris and I only had a limited amount of time. Even so, our conversation still stretched to more than two hours when we were just focusing right on the zero to two centimeter depth. And at the top, I like to take some extra samples. Now about roots, um, I mentioned that I have the affliction of not being terribly concerned about roots and I linked to a blog post in which I explained why I'm not terribly concerned about roots. Fortunately for me, I've thought about many of these things before and I've often written about them before. So on this blog, I think there's more than 400 posts now. I have a number of articles I've written. I have a number of blog posts from my old site that I gradually move over to this current one. So there's a pretty good chance that when people ask me a question, I'm able to refer to something that I've written before. And I did in this case. So I said, I'm not terribly concerned about roots. And I mentioned also answering this first comment or responding to this first comment where my correspondent said that this test can pick up. It, it tells me that our improved managed practices are producing roots down there. And I don't think that's necessarily true. It's what the test is telling you is what the organic matter is at, at different depths, but it doesn't say if the roots are alive or dead. So if we're concerned about the roots, I would rather just look at them. I would rather look at the roots rather than rely only on this type of testing, which could be measuring dead roots. So if you get a change in organic matter, if the organic matter is going up, it doesn't tell you that the live root mass is going up. It, it could be that dead root mass is going up too, along with a lot of other things that to take together, that's what makes up the soil organic matter. You can read the full responses, all the details, all the links, all the little funny jokes, or, or maybe not so funny jokes. I thought my affliction of not being terribly concerned about roots was a was a nice turn of phrase. You can read all of that in the post. The, the next one, a short one, the comment B was, he agrees that dry eject operations can place sand deeper than required and the depth of the unit be adjusted. I presume that it can be, and I have never used a dry eject, so I'm, I'm not sure what all of the adjustments are, but I presume that the depth of the sand can be adjusted. But to change the subject slightly and not talk about just that machine, but to go back to what the 
office hours discussion with Chris Tritabaugh was all about was about the OM246 testing. What I find especially valuable about that, about that testing and about the data that we get and what we can look at on the reports is the breakdown by depth. So we can see what the organic matter is right at the surface, down one increment lower, down another increment of depth lower in the soil. By finding what the organic matter is at these depths, seeing how it changes over time, it's possible to put the sand exactly where it needs to be and make adjustments with whatever machines we're using, with whatever tools that we are using to remove organic matter as necessary in the right places and to make adjustments with sand addition in the proper quantities in the right places. That's where I think this testing is, is really, really valuable. Going on to the third comment is C. And here we were talking about the organic matter content. We were talking about the organic matter content, especially in the top two centimeters. That's what Chris and I focused on in our discussion. My correspondent wrote, what about the influence of the other 95%, the, the stuff that's not organic matter? So basically he's talking about sand in, in the root zone. What's the influence of the other 95% on your green speed, your bobble test, your firmness testing, etc.? Would have to believe that CU, by that he means coefficient of uniformity value, of that other 95% is of influence. And he talks a little bit about river sand that's rounded uh, and, and some surface instability problems. And that's true. The sand will have an effect, but that's not really what we were talking about. We were talking about the organic matter content. And so as the organic matter content changes, we can adjust how much sand needs to be applied and where the sand should go. Maybe we, maybe we will adjust the growth rate also. If, if we can grow the grass a little bit slower, it's expected that the organic matter accumulation rate will go down. And I agree that the other 95%, the material that is not the organic matter, must have some effect on the playability. And if the playability is fine, and if the organic matter changes are sufficient to make adjustments in the playability, which I think in a lot of situations they are, then we don't really need to worry so much about the other 95%. But in the cases where just making adjustments in the organic matter does not produce the type of playability that is desired, then one definitely should be checking with the sand material. And I think if you want to adjust the firmness, one good thing to check is the coefficient of you the coefficient of uniformity, the CU of ant. Moving on to D. Moving on to D. I'm just checking. I'm checking on this post. Hmm. Ah, uh, there's E. Okay, I found E. <laughs> I thought I thought this D one was the final one, but it's the fourth out of five. Now this one was really interesting, and this is really what what I wanted to write about in the post. And this is what stretched the blog post to eight minutes. 
for estimated reading time. Uh, so for D, his fourth comment, he said, you continue to downgrade the importance of potassium. I can take that. But how does a super easily apply sulfur to maintain at least seven parts per million, which is the MLSM value, I believe, he, he wrote, when sulfate of potash is an easy way to apply sulfates as a granular or soluble at low rates through the season. His goal is 15 to 20 parts per million of sulfur in the soil to allow for a leaching rain event before the next spray tank application can recharge the system. And I said, good question, and then I wrote a long answer. And first I responded about potassium. He said that I continued to downgrade the importance of potassium, and I said, I don't mean to downgrade the importance of potassium, but I do like to be careful about how much potassium is applied. And when the grass can get enough potassium from the soil, I try to avoid recommending it as fertilizer. One of my recent blog posts and one of the previous episodes of this show, which I'll put a link to also, I talked about mineral forms of potassium in the soil non-exchangeable forms of potassium in the soil that can serve as a slow release form of potassium from sand root zones. And it's possible that in some sands, well, it's, it's not just possible. It, it, it happens that in some sands, all the potassium that the grass can ever use comes from the sand itself. So a simple top dressing application could apply more sand than the grass could use all year long. And we don't really think of it like that. We don't think of sand as being a source of potassium fertilizer, but if the mineralogy of the sand is just right, then the sand contains a lot of potassium and those type of sands, the grass growing in those sands will not be responsive to potassium fertilizer. So with soil testing for potassium, I think it's useful to look at three things. Look at the soil test potassium over time, see how that changes, and then look at how much nitrogen was applied. If you if you know how much nitrogen was applied to the grass, then you know what the maximum potassium uptake could have been. And then you look at how much potassium fertilizer was applied. And by doing a mass balance between those three quantities, the expected maximum uptake of potassium, the known amount of potassium applied, you can predict what the change in soil test potassium should have been. So if the soil potassium goes down more than you expected, you can expect that that sand probably is not a good source of potassium in plant available form to the grass. But if the soil does not go down. If the soil test potassium does not go down as much as expected, then there's extra potassium in the system. And that extra potassium in the system is probably because the sand itself can supply some K. So this is something that I hope to clarify and explain a little bit better and do some more examples of. Um, but that's kind of the thing with potassium. Potassium. So I don't mean potassium is not important and I don't want to downgrade the importance of it, but I do say that if the grass can already get enough potassium from the soil, which you can tell from a regular soil test or from this more complicated thing of, of looking at possible release of potassium from the sand itself, 
then you don't need to apply more potassium than the grass can use. And I find it's customary in the turf grass industry to routinely apply two or three times as much potassium as the grass can use. And that just doesn't make any sense to me because you get all the benefits of potassium by eliminating a deficiency. And so all the benefit for potassium comes at the low end. It comes from moving from a deficiency to a sufficient situation. It doesn't come from when you already have enough potassium and adding more. So in that way, I, I would say I would downgrade the importance of potassium, but I don't mean to downgrade the, the terrible thing that is a potassium deficiency. I, and I linked to two posts where I talked about that. And then to sulfur, this is, this gets really interesting and I won't elaborate too much because I also talked about this in last week's MLSN newsletter, the 18th MLSN newsletter. So for the more than 1000 subscribers from around the world who got that, if you read through that rather long newsletter, you'll see that I worked through some calculations about sulfur, about calcium and about magnesium. And it was prompted because of what I wrote in this particular blog post responding to this inquiry, my correspondent about sulfur. And he's asking about how do you easily keep sulfur in the soil, at least at the MLSN minimum of in parts per million. And I responded that I don't really worry about it so much. And the reason is for the elements, calcium, magnesium, and sulfur. The reason why those are in the MLSN guidelines is because when we developed the MLSN guidelines 10 years ago, we developed those guidelines to be an alternative to the conventional guidelines. And you can read about those conventional guidelines in a golf course management magazine article published in 2004 called Clarifying Soil Testing Part 3, SLAN Sufficiency Ranges and Recommendations. When we developed the MLSN guidelines, we developed them to be an alternative to the conventional guidelines. And as we did so, we wanted to come up with a number for potassium and for phosphorus and for calcium and for magnesium and for sulfur, because of those are the same elements for which there were guidelines or sufficiency ranges and recommendations in that particular article, which was written, it, the lead author on that was Dr. Bob Caro. And as the years have gone by, and there's been a bit of criticism about sulfur, calcium, and magnesium being a little bit irrelevant, I can understand that criticism. And I want to explain a little bit about why they were in MLSN in the first place and how I deal with them now, because I don't really make sulfur, calcium, or magnesium fertilizer recommendations based on MLSN. What I do with MLSN values for those elements is understand that that means if you're at MLSN or below for those elements, then your soil is relatively low in those elements. It's compared to other soils producing good turf, your soil would be in the bottom 10% if you are at MLSN or below for those elements. 
But the reason why I don't really worry about making a fertilizer recommendation for it is what I explained in the MLSN newsletter. In this case, I worked through the example for sulfur because calcium, magnesium, and sulfur are secondary elements. They're used in moderate quantities by the grass, less than nitrogen, less than potassium, about the same as phosphorus, much more than micronutrients. They're called secondary elements or secondary nutrients. And for sulfur, we can calculate how much the grass may use. And I did that in this blog post in this response to the comment about sulfur. I said, I don't really worry what it is in the soil. I just want to make sure that the grass has enough. And we can be pretty sure that the grass has enough because we can calculate how much the grass would use. So I did that. I used an example and I said, if it's been fertilized in one year with nitrogen at a rate of 15 grams per square meter, which is three pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet, if that's the case, then we would expect the maximum sulfur use would be about one eighth of that or 1.9 grams per square meter, 1.9 grams of sulfur per square meter per year, which is a small amount. That's equivalent to 0.4 pounds, four tenths of a pound of sulfur per thousand square feet for an entire year. It's a relatively small amount, but if the grass can't get that amount from the soil, then growth is going to be restricted or there's going to be some yellowing or some type of irregularity with the turf grass if it can't get enough sulfur. So I want to make sure that the grass has enough. However, irrigation water contains sulfur. And the average irrigation water has about 10 to 30 parts per million sulfur. And that may not sound like so much, but if you do the math on that, it turns out that if we pick the middle of that normal range, which is 20 parts per million sulfur, it would only take 95 millimeters of irrigation, 3.7 inches of water to supply that entire annual supply of sulfur. And most places are supplying much more irrigation than that. So you can you can check this for your site. Check how much irrigation you're applying, check how much sulfur is in your irrigation water and look at what your nitrogen rate is. If you do that, you can figure out how much sulfur the grass could possibly use. Figure that the grass is using about one eighth the amount of sulfur as the nitrogen that's applied. So multiply your nitrogen rate times 0.125 to find your expected maximum sulfur use. And then look at how much sulfur is in your irrigation water. Look at how much irrigation water is being applied and see if your sulfur being supplied through irrigation is more or less than the amount the grass uses. It's quite likely that in, in most places you're grass is going to be receiving free fertigation sulfur and that solves that problem and the final the final comment e was about brookside uh, brookside lab where i do all of these tests but chris and i didn't really emphasize that because we thought people knew this or i i assumed that people knew that this is where the test is done. So the comment was Brookside has been very cooperative to develop the 
440 and 360 temperature test and now just the 440 440 degree burn of all the sample that you send um 440 degrees celsius which burns all the organic matter and he said i would have hoped that somewhere that you would have acknowledged the source of your information well i appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that and i linked to five more blog posts in which i have explained that the data are coming from brookside and i know that many of the people that were there on the on the live stream doing a kind of an ongoing conversation with Chris and I, as we have this discussion, they have also done organic testing and they've had their samples done at Brookside. So I, I think everybody that was involved in that conversation when it was happening live, we knew that we were doing the tests at Brookside Labs. So that's um, something that I'm happy to mention. So you can do those tests through me or you can do it through any of the consultants affiliated with Brookside Labs, which many of those are now part of something called the Amplify Network. And I put links, I put links to both Brookside Labs and to the Amplify Network in this blog post. So you can get these tests done at Brookside Labs and they have a standard procedure to measure the organic material on 100% of the sample that you've sent in, assuming that you've sent in a sample that's got the right amount of volume. I have conveniently made some sampling instructions. I put a link to that also. So I'm going to put a ton of links in the description to this episode, and you will be able to get more information about all of this if you want to. I, um, I, so as I mentioned, I've made sampling instructions. I've, I've got a two page document explaining how to collect samples for this OM246 testing. And I love getting feedback like this. I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to continue these discussions. And I, I'm so flattered that people take the time after they've read something that I've written or after they've listened to one of these episodes or watched one of these episodes that they think about it and they write to me with feedback and ask for clarification or tell me where they disagree or or have some alternative view about some of these things i appreciate your time i thank you for your interest in these turf grass topics and for atc from bangkok i'm michael woods and I'll be back next time with another episode of the ATC Double Cut with more turf grass information. Thank you.